Uh, hello. It turns out we are doing this. This is the first, I guess, official episode of the Jewish Currents podcast, uh, which now has a name. Uh, we're calling it On the Nose in honor of our uh, spring 2021 issue and also the first kind of experiment that we did. Um, our colleague Ari Brostoff thinks that it's a little too slick, like to NPR E like on the media or something, but hopefully you like it and let us know what you think. Uh, Nathan, you want to tell us a little bit about how this came to be or why we're doing this? <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, from the, the title came up kind of in a appropriately idiosyncratic fortuitous way where I was, we were recording our first episode of what became the podcast, which was, um, about the cover with the nose on it. And I, I mentioned to some friends we were doing a, in a group chat, we were doing a recording on the nose, um, which was immediately mistaken for the name of our new podcast. Um, but then we did end up using that title for the original thing. And yeah, it came to seem the, the more we sort of joked about it, the more it, it seemed to stick. I mean, I hear Ari's uh, concern that it's a little, a little NPR or something. I, I think maybe even in an even more, grandiose way. One thing I kind of like about it is that it almost, it almost sounds sort of like, I don't know, there's like this, that one of the Aristotle treatises has come down to us as <laughs> which is on the soul or like Montaigne's essays are all like of X and of Y. So it's sort of like an over aggrandizing treaty, except it's about, you know, a nose. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I've come to, to think about it and like it. And maybe we'll trick some NPR liberals into listening to this weird podcast. For the record, I, I suggested full shtetl jacket, which <laughs> I still stand by. But, you know, this is a pseudo-democracy here, Jewish Current, so I will I will agree and go with this decision, uh, whether or not I agree with it in the spirit uh-huh. of the conversation. <laughs> well, I also suggested conversations with Jews, and as this is a pro-Sally Rooney environment, uh, you know— I hoped to, to prevail, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're also going to be having conversations with not Jews. I mean, I was thinking that we are the Jews that the conversations are with, but I think this is good. I like on the nose. I'm glad we're going with it. I think, I think we can end our, this, this was our solipsism cold open. So (laughs) talk about the topic. Well, we are going to talk today about polls in surveys and numbers and statistics. Um, the ADL just put out a survey. Nathan, you want to tell us about it? Yeah. So the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, put out this survey on June 9th, uh, which was following up on some data they had been putting out that had been very uh, influential uh, and, and picked up in a lot of in a lot of stories in the media. Um, the earlier data, which uh, which Mari did some great analysis on for Currents, um, was was making claims of an uptick in anti-Semitism uh, following the war in Gaza. And that original data, um, was, as Mari had pointed out, it was sort of aggregating these individual claims of people saying, this happened to me, or in most cases, I saw this, or I'm aware of this happening. Whereas this follow-up survey was asking people um, surveying bet- between the kind of the end of May to the beginning of June about basically surveying American 
Jews about what, what they have experienced or witnessed. And then also, I think maybe even most interestingly, how they understand things, what they define anti-Semitism as, because one of the things that's always at issue here, and a lot of Mari's analysis pointed to this, is well, what is what defines an anti-Semitic incident? Um, and so I'll just note some of the kind of top line things here before we, we dig into the the numbers. The the kind of big number is they claim that that 60 percent of American Jews personally witnessed anti-Semitism because of the Middle East conflict in May. That's how they frame it. And then I think the other kind of biggest data to just mention is they ask this question about whether about whether different things would be definitely or probably anti-Semitic. They didn't disambiguate between those. It was that was the category. Um, And they say 75 percent of Jews say it is definitely or probably anti-Semitic to say that Israel should not exist as a Jewish state. Um, And then that 70 percent say um, it is anti-Semitic to compare Israel's actions to those of the Nazis. 67 percent say it it is anti-Semitic to protest Israeli actions outside an American synagogue. Um, 61% say it is anti-Semitic to call Zionism racist. 56% uh, say it's anti-Semitic for, to support BDS, basically, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And 55% say it's anti-Semitic to call Israel an apartheid state, which is very useful information because these are basically uh, a collection of some of the most disputed cases, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think we can kind of start, start there. It's pretty amazing, actually, because Mari's piece was sort of, which was quite popular and really kind of flew around the internet, uh, was like, hey, ADL, like, what are you doing? You're, you're just counting all of these things. And their response is like, yeah, well, so Jews agree with us, you know, like it's sort of their answer is like that Jewish experience is, is kind of, I mean, maybe they're not saying that Jewish experience is an objective truth, but they seem to be saying that by putting out this survey right on the heels of that. Like, it, it seems to be a move that's like, well, whether or not it's controversial, this is what Jews think is anti-Semitism, and Jews are the experts on anti-Semitism, voila, <laughs> you know. Firstly, I love the idea that we might vote I, we should have a, a democratic process by which Jews get to decide what is anti-Semitism, which I think is a, a really exciting thing. Um, and especially, you know, given the success of efforts like the uh, International Holocaust Remember- Remembrance, uh, whatchamacallit, the IHRA, um, the idea that these determinations would have the force of law uh, in suppressing speech um, across the United States and other places in the world. Um, the idea that... Uh, affirming that 55% of Jews somewhat or very much agree with the idea that uh, that calling Israel an apartheid state is anti-Semitism is both like very funny and also very scary. I mean, this is a, that word has been most recently pushed to the forefront. I mean, people have been calling out the apartheid system in Israel-Palestine for years, but it's, it's had a renewed, uh, a renewed level of attention because Israeli human rights organizations are, are pushing that determination. So there really is like a, a somewhat classic um, Ouroboros of, uh, you know, of Israeli lefties saying something true and American Jews saying it's anti-Semitic, which is dark, but mildly funny to me. I do think it's interesting that in some ways, I mean, I, I agree with, with all that. I also think it's striking in some ways that the lowest numbers by you know a factor of twenty points are 
the things around BDS and calling Israel an apartheid state, the, the things that were most, uh, got the most people to agree that they're anti-Semitic were, were saying that Israel should not exist as a Jewish state and comparing Israel's actions to those of, of the Nazis. I know it's hard to maybe speculate on, you know, why those things are, but part of what stood out to me is the way in which there's a lesser share of these kind of more strategic, uh, like objective political claims or something, or just the idea like apartheid obviously is sensitive rhetoric, but it's also like a legal definition, a human rights claim. It's clearly becoming more popular. And then BDS also is very scary to people, but is this, I don't know, it's this kind of political formation and list of particular demands. Um, both of those things are kind of, I feel like the arguments for them tend to rely on sort of saying like, look, Israel's like any country. And if it's doing these things, or we have a right to protest in these ways, whereas Israel should not exist as a Jewish state and comparing to the Nazis, I don't know, those just seem to speak to me to what a lot of this seems related to, which is just this idea that to me, it seems like a lot of what people end up calling anti-Semitic is just kind of responsive discomfort or something. And the, and these two seem to be the ones that really prime a certain visceral reaction. And I, I find the Nazi comparison ones in some way the most interesting because I've, it's the one I most struggle to even see the defensible reason it would be anti-Semitic. It seems to me mostly that it just really upsets people and because it's so such a visceral reaction in ways that I, I can understand or empathize with. But it's so, but I can't, I haven't been able to formulate for myself or find a good actual analytical explanation of why that would be anti-Semitic. That's it's interesting too because I think oftentimes these like guides or various discourses will go around on the left. I feel like things I used to read in college, maybe I even wrote one once, but where for like my some thing social justice related dean or guide we were making at school, but there was something like I think oftentimes these guides will say it's okay to be anti-Zionist. It's okay to have a different political position about what's going to be in, you know, in the land of Israel-Palestine ultimately. But don't let your rhetoric use Nazi comparisons because that is a way of slipping into anti-Semitism or maybe not always slipping into anti-Semitism, but that's uncomfortable for Jews. So in some ways, I feel like there's circles where anti-Zionism or, you know, not believing in a specifically Jewish state is considered within the bounds of acceptable discourse, but the Nazi comparisons aren't. And so this is kind of an interesting, so in some ways I was a little bit surprised to see that switched in this poll, just because I'm primed to the other, the other direction. I mean, like this question of discomfort is really valuable because I do think that there is this way in which discomfort and anti-Semitism have become the same thing. Um, I mean, I know like we have, perhaps made a decision not to talk about the Pew study today, and maybe at some point we will, but something that I've been really struck with, or the thing that keeps sticking with me about the Pew study is that like, they have all of these um, measures or metrics of happiness of Jews, you know, and overall, like Jews are pretty content. Like they're like happy, they're, they're making money overall, or, you know, they say they're like happy with their family life. They're happy, you know, with their mental health, like they're doing great. You know, they like to hang out with their friends, whatever. They like to spend time outdoors. Like they're reporting really high levels of contentment. Um, and, but they're also reporting higher levels of anti-Semitism. And I was just thinking about how there are all of these studies, like 
about, for example, the mental health of Black people in America and how their experience of mental health is correlated with like, um, you know, how they self-report on their own happiness and that there's a huge racial gap um, in terms of self-reported happiness. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking like, if there was really the kind of anti-Semitism that Jews report feeling, like if they were really this, if they were really experiencing anti-Semitism to the extent that they feel like they are, wouldn't that affect their contentment levels, you know, on a basic level? Like, wouldn't they just report lesser levels of happiness or wouldn't they actually just like have less of a reason to be content, like economically or socially or any of these other reasons? And so, like, I do think this question of like discomfort, like where discomfort starts and where like that slips over into like reporting anti-Semitism and like, I, I, I actually am really glad the ADL did this study because it, it is uh, extremely useful to understand um, how reliable Jews are as self-reporters of anti-Semitism, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of a bleak picture. And also, what do we do with that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it might highlight the difference between two ideas, uh, like the idea of oppression and the idea of ideology. I know this is going to seem like I'm putting on the Frankfurt School hat, but that's a requirement um, once or twice during uh, during one of these podcasts. So, um, I mean, the difference between ideology and oppression here is important because oppression, one can have an experience of oppression. Clearly, Black people in the United States have an experience of racism, and some Jews have an experience of anti-Semitic violence. I mean, there's no question that anti-Semitic violence exists. It, it obviously exists. But there's a difference between an ideology and an experience of, of oppression in that the ADL and Jewish establishment leaders writ large could be correct in pointing out anti-Semitism as a pervasive ideology in American society and in society at large. I mean, I when I was a union organizer, I remember going into the basement of various hotels and meeting with delegates and uh, a bunch of times I would be talking to them about conspiracy theories. And, you know, this was before QAnon, but it was, you know, as soon as we started talking about the bosses, all of a sudden we'd be talking about how the Rothschilds actually own this hotel and how they're, you know, I guess setting the schedules and were causing the, the guys in the liquor storage cage to have to work harder. Like it never really made sense exactly how this was directly interfacing with their reality. But the thing is like, they were always half right. Right. I mean, the part they're wrong that the Rothschilds own the hotel. No, they don't. Um, people who own that particular hotel aren't even Jewish, but they are correct that there's a conspiracy. I mean, the conspiracy happens at 7 AM every day in the manager's office where their schedules are set and where their amount of work is determined. And I think like, there's a conflation. I mean, obviously, an ideology is a system of beliefs meant to explain something about the world, you know, and I think it, it, it can be both true, like racism is both, and anti-Semitism are both ideologies and experiences. But I think the difference, it's possible that Jews could be looking at the United States, even be correct that anti-Semitism as an ideology is pervasive and still, by and large, have a, a contented generally happy, generally wealthier, all according to Pew, experience of life here in the United States. And I think that part of what part that's part of the dissonance here where and you know there's been pushback on work that we've done and others in pointing out, you know, the, the gigantic gap between the supposedly all-encompassing, pervasive, dangerous reality of anti-Semitism um, and the experience of 
black and brown people. And then of course of Jews of color who sit in between and among those, uh, those different experiences. So I just think it's worth pointing that out where, but the ideology can be real and its effects in, in people's actual experience could be relatively minor. Totally. And I, I don't mean to say like anti-Semitism doesn't exist. I, I just am pointing out that like, at least in the reported, at least right in this ADL survey in terms of people saying they experienced personally. And by the way, they say they experienced it both in person and online, which is like a huge, I, I mean, I mean, what people experience online, considering the sheer volume of content that is out there and the sheer volume of content that people's eyeballs see and take in is not the same as asking like what they've experienced in person. And I do think that those questions should, should have been separated, but still with this uh, particular survey, them asking about essentially things related to Israel and experiencing those things as, as anti-Semitism. I mean, that's not really an ideological, like that's a, you know, like they're not talking about Charlottesville or something like the existence of the of like an anti-Semitic ideology. Like they really are talking about, you know, quote unquote, anti-Israel speech. Yeah. And also I think to be just extra clear on that, you know, thing about witnessing things online. I mean, that means somebody could have seen one of the viral videos. I mean, my understanding, I guess it's a little bit unclear, but my understanding is that if you're someone who saw one of those viral videos of, you know, one of the anti-Semitic attacks associated with the protest or something like that, perhaps that could be construed as witnessing anti-Semitism online. I would probably then, like, because I watched that video, I think I witnessed anti-Semitism, but I, I don't think I've witnessed any anti-Semitism directly at me and, like, definitely not in person. One thing that came up in my article was that the ADL has this very specific way of defining anti-Semitism that lumps in a variety of types of incidents. So there are these, you know, can be pretty, like, intentional anti-Semitic beatings that come from, you know, seeing somebody um, who's wearing a kippah in the street and making anti-Semitic comments. And then there's vandalism, uh, which, you know, there's tends to be a pretty large amount of like swastika vandalism that goes on in the United States. And that's something that went on during this period of Israel, Gaza violence. And that goes on pretty often outside of that. And then things like, you know, somebody holding up a protest sign saying Zionism is racism. But the thing is like, it's interesting because, the ADL has this definition uh, that includes things like like saying Zionism is racism or a lot of anti-Zionist speech as anti-Semitic. But according to the survey, it seems like a lot of Jews share that. So, you know, on the one hand, I think we have a lot of criticism for of the, of the ADL, rightfully, um, for what they do. Um, but they are also kind of reflecting this broader, you know, population opinion. I mean, it's also, they shape, they have a role in shaping that opinion. So it's not so clear. I mean, like the institutions on the one hand are reflecting this opinion, but they're also, there's this, um, you know, two-way relationship in which they create that opinion. So it's like, not that surprising that most American Jews would think as anti-Semitic if that's been like the dominant national narrative for a really long time. But we can't say that it doesn't represent what most Jews think is anti-Semitic because we're, perhaps it does. Well, I mean, for, first of all, there's the question that we can maybe put aside for a second, because I think it's one question that we should really dig into, which is like what whether it matters. Like it obviously matters that Jews feel this way. But, um, you know, does that constitute an objective truth as to what 
anti-Semitism is, I think we would all agree that it does not. And so like, there's a question about like what we do with that, that I'll put to the side for a minute. But I also kind of just wonder like, what would happen if the ADL was like, well, I I mean, part of the reason that Jews think this way is because the foremost uh, organization tasked with educating Jews about anti-Semitism has also been an Israel advocacy organization uh, for, you know, decades. So like, what would happen if the ADL said, you know what, we're going to do the responsible thing and, uh, and just not count these kinds of cases and actually like stick to what constitutes, you know, like there are, obviously there are situations where, uh, like anti-Israel speech or anti-Israel actions, uh, slide into anti-Semitism or are motivated by anti-Semitism. And like, I'm not saying they shouldn't, uh, report on those things or count those things, but, um, like, what if they just stuck to that and said, look, we were wrong. And, you know, would, would a majority of Americans, American Jews who believe this right now start to change their minds? I mean, like the question of what American Jews, as you were saying, Mari, think is not independent of what they have been made to believe by their leadership uh, or like purported leadership. So it's kind of hard to disentangle those two things, you know? Totally. And it's, you know, I know this is, you know, not implicit in what you're saying, Ariel, but it's, it's such a deep seated project. I mean, these are things we cover all the time, but that it's sort of like, I mean, the ADL could wake up tomorrow and say like, we're not, you know, we actually don't define these. We actually don't think anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, or we actually don't think um, these things that actually are just anti-Zionist or critical of Israel are anti-Semitic. And I mean, that might change things, but it wouldn't, change everything or it's like there's the context of this belief and this is how i think it also you know gets wrapped up in the question of discomfort the the identity formation of american jews in the past more than 70 years has been so imbricated with uh a certain zionist narrative that it's it's becomes very, very difficult to disentangle, I think, even at the level of an individual's experience. And this varies for different people based on the different religious, political, generational contexts they grew up in, and then where they move politically and what happens to them. But I think it's part of the hard thing is um, is just disentangling someone's experience of a certain thing which reads to them. It's almost not an analytical experience in some ways. I think for most people to say they see something and then they're like, is that anti-Semitic? Or like it becomes, this is kind of what I was thinking about the thing about like, it, it just becomes a reaction of like, I see that, I see that sign and I feel scared. And that's just an experience. There's a history that undergirds that experience. And there's a discourse that undergirds that experience. But I do think it's hard. I mean, it's, I guess it's part of the challenge of things we have to think about of like, how do you actually turn that experience, which like started in discourse and then became an experience it back into discourse enough to like have a conversation about like why that experience is quote unquote wrong. It's just hard to have. That's part of the problem, I think, is this disjunction between like the terrain of actually of analysis and argument and the terrain of what has just become an experience. I I think something that's happening now, I mean, what's very frustrating to watch is that this can, I mean, this like total conflation of, of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism basically negates the thing 
that would make these attacks anti-Semitic. Um, like if these people were saying, it doesn't matter what my ideology is, I'm being attacked because I'm a Jew, then I would agree, like, this is anti-Semitism. But basically what people are saying is, like, I stand with Israel and they attack me for being a Zionist. And then I'm sort of like, well, you just found yourself in a political fight, you know, like in the same way that a Democrat and a Republican might find themselves in a political fight. I I think it raises this, you know, what Nathan was sort of talking about, about this politics of like feelings or like what we're supposed to do about people's feelings. Um, and I think it's really hard to figure that out because there is this very strong sense from like this large majority of Jews, many of whom have loud voices and have are represented by institutions that really encourage them to speak up about this, that rile, rile them up about this. And many of them have access to political representatives and types of political power in our country. Um, and they, they feel that they have been victim of anti-Semitism because of this. And it does kind of raise this question about, you know, how we handle feelings. And I think there's there's something to think about in terms of comparisons to like abolitionist discourse on this. Um, like, for example, when um, Claire interviewed Mariam Kaba for us, there was this very uh, useful quote, or it's, I think it actually comes from um, Kaba's recent book, but which is about how, you know, abolition is not about your fucking feelings. And there's often these concerns that come up in that, like, for example, victims of crime and vic especially um, sometimes it, the way that this comes the most complicated on the left is victims of sexual violence who then have to figure out, you know, what it means to have hard conversations about what abolition looks like in those types of situations. But there's this idea, like, you know, because like being a victim in many ways is such as this awful experience. And then that feeling becomes a justification for increased carceral response or, you know, crime or feelings of fear, whether or not the crime, sometimes the crime is very real in a lot of these cases. Sometimes there's neighborhoods where people are very scared and maybe there's not actually that much crime or it's like irrational or sometimes it's even based on racism. But anyway, like feelings just come into this stuff in all sorts of ways. And it's what does it look like to have to say, no, maybe these feelings actually can't control the policy decisions that we make. And I think we are in a position on the left where the left has kind of leaned in to a politics of feeling for a very long time. Like, and it's very understandable because a lot of what like oppressive power structures have done in the United States is like dismiss certain feelings and certain experiences. But we have in effect created a situation in which you can say, well, this is my ex lived experience and nobody can refute that because then they are oppressing me. And because Jews are a minority group in the United States, then Jews are using those same you know, that same language as everybody else on the rest of the left. And then we've got a situation where maybe what somebody's lived experiences is, is what they really strongly feel was their experience of anti-Semitism is not what I agree was the problem or is not the thing that they want to do about it is not what I think we should do. And so I think that the, in some ways, like a lot of the modern left has, has set this trap and it is something that we have to have to wrestle with a little bit. We could probably all agree, at least I'll say, I, I believe there's a value to the, the framework and the move in which we can say it's important to uh, listen to the people's experiences of oppression and to say and to like give good faith credence to saying, you know, this was my experience of this. This was racist. You might not think this was racist, but it 
was because of this. Um, and to like take that seriously as a, as Mario was saying, and as a, as a corrective to like, to systemic forms of, you know, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and, and all these things. Um, but it become but we run into an analytical problem or a problem when, when there's like a real disagreement. And I feel like yeah, the left inevitably runs into this where it's saying, you know, we take that evidence of, I experience this or I feel this seriously. It's also a very easily exploitable form of evidence because it doesn't, it's precisely because it's not discursive. It's not analytical. It's not something someone uh, gets to disagree with, or at least someone outside the group gets to disagree with. I mean, part of the whole context of us having this conversation is, I mean, it's not as if we are not going to, we don't get people mad by having these conversations. We definitely do, but we can have them we're permitted in the discourse uh, by more people and we have more more of a leg to stand on in some way because we can be like, we're Jews, we're a Jewish magazine. Um, we rest on that authority. And it is, and it's like part of the whole project of what we're doing is that we're able to participate in a different way because, uh, but because we are Jews. Um, but it's, it's a difficult kind of discursive economy or something to, to navigate. No, I mean, it is really uncomfortable because I think what's really interesting is that with the last response that we did, we, it was kind of a critique of Jewish identity politics insofar as identity politics creates kind of a culture of grievance and victimization. And it's like, we are in a position to say for Jews, like, Hey, this really isn't working for us, but it's sort of interesting because like, it is an overall critique of identity politics. We can't say you know, to any other group, like, hey, maybe it isn't working for you all either, <laughs> you know. Um, but it, it does seem implicit in the critique. Like, my question is always, if if Jews don't know, or if Jews can't be trusted to tell you what anti-Semitism is, like, what does it mean about the limitations, as you all are saying, of experiential um, oppression? Like, I the, the value of those experiences, of course, is that, like, things are being understudied, under looked at, under, um, like underexposed in society overall. Um, and, and I know that many Jews do feel that anti-Semitism functions in the same way. Part of it, you know, it reminds me of Shoal Magid, Professor Shoal Magid's upcoming book about Mayor Kahana, and also Professor Mark Dollinger's book, uh, Black Power, Jewish Politics, because there is a long history of the white mainstream Jewish community directly reacting to black liberation movements here in the United States and building like pseudo versions of this, of similar architecture. So there were even examples of uh, the Black Panthers doing uh, sickle cell anemia awareness drives in black communities and some Jewish activists then doing Tay-Sachs drives in Jewish, in Jewish communities, which Tay-Sachs is such a serious disease that you generally die before you're three years old. So there's, I mean, the, the, the symbolic value of the thing was far outstripped any sort of medical value that, that could have been provided by such a thing. But what is messaged by that is a, is a sort of like artificial uh, uh, parallel position with black people in the United States. And so much of this is built around trying to looking at the black experience, which is a foundational experience in the way the United States works, which does have a unique relationship to capitalism here in the United States. And then Jews rightfully wondering, well, wh what does that mean for us? And the uncomfortable answer is that for most Jews in the United States, 
we are white people generally having a relatively good experience under capitalism. And that to me is why we then need to, why we feel this sort of, this psychological need to, to explain to ourselves why life here doesn't feel good. You know, and I think that's in the 70s that that resulted in the invention of the Jewish Defense League, uh, you know, which was Mayor Kahana's group, which became a terrorist organization in Israel-Palestine and, and became a banned party that's now in the Knesset. Um, and here in the United States, you know, there are images of, you know, of uh, very publicly presenting Jews with bats and whatnot. I encourage everyone to, to Google some of this. There's some striking images. And today, I think this is presented in, I think we are talking about the current iteration where Black Lives Matter has shown that you can take, it is possible to start from a place of identity politics, but if you're talking about the black, the reality for black and brown people in the United States, to talk about identity politics is to talk about prison and is to talk about a carceral state and is to talk about capitalism. And that's not the same for every group across the United States. You can't just copy paste that to every possible demographic and expect a similar result. If you start in a Jewish identity politics space, you get, as Leonard Cohen uh, said, you you end up either in psychiatry or the insane Talmud of Zionism. And I think like when you look at some of these survey results, that's just what you're seeing. But but still, the question stands about like the limits of subjectivity in terms of, uh, you know, because like it's not like it's not I, I don't think what you're saying, Jacob, is I, I agree, obviously, that like there's no comparison and like Jews trying to participate in like Jews have long been not just Jews. I mean, like time to say goodbye. The podcast hosted by Tammy King, Jay Caspian King and Annie Liu, uh, where they talk about kind of Asian American experience, uh, talks about this kind of thing all the time about the way that, that Asian Americans have been looking at, uh, black activism and black experience and trying to find their way through it. And, you know, sort of by like copying those models and, and often finding them ill-fitting and, um, and, you know, I, I hear you that it's like on some level for Jews that just like isn't going to work. Um, but I think the question, like, I don't think that we're saying that like that, that other people of color are allowed a certain kind of experiential subjectivity that Jews are not like on a certain level, we have to be able to say that there's a limitation broadly. It, it is just a question, like who gets, who gets to decide, you know? And like in our community specifically, like, even if we're just staying in our lane, like what does it mean for, for, for us, for example, as a minority of Jews who believes that there should be a full separation between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism to basically say like, look, we're right. And try to like politically advocate to impose that, you know, as a definition. What does that mean? I think that was what the left strategy, the Jewish left strategy has been so far is to try to, is to play on experiential terms and say, well, there is actually, we have this different experience of anti-Semitism, which is coming from the right in the US. And it's then kind of using the same sort of, in some ways, like trying to take that template away from the Jewish right and saying, no, actually you need to take seriously our fear and our victimization by the right wing white nationalists of the United States. And so it's and, and then our argument in the response, which got a lot of pushback, was saying this stuff is very concerning and important. But like are our experiences of fear from the right wing actually consistent with the real harm that the real danger that we're in with the real harm that we face 
you know, what are the limits of our experiences and feelings about that and relying on them. But in general, like the left strategy has been to try to use the same template and just turn it around to use it against the right rather than to um, actually the Jewish left strategy and rather than to actually kind of try question its fundamental uh, dogma, which makes sense because it's really hard. And again, like you don't want to be in the position where you're questioning anybody else's experience. I mean, I actually interestingly read our response or like thought about our response differently in the sense of like, even, even leaning into an experiential lens, like I would say like most of us, not like in the South or in areas that are where like being a Jew, but like where most Jews live in, in big cities are that they are not having constant experiences of anti-Semitism is my guess, it, unless they believe that anti-Israel stuff is anti-Semitism. And then they probably are, especially because they are liberals and in like progressive spaces more often than they probably are experiencing those things. So I don't know. Right. But I think, I think that that is what we believe, but I think that the Jewish left more broadly the, in the tendency that we're critiquing is that the Jewish left more broadly has started use the opportunity to try to talk about their own experiences and feelings around victimization and anti-Semitism from the right. And our intervention was to say that maybe that's not really happening to us as much as, as much as in a way that matches the level of the discourse. But I think that the tendency we're critiquing is one to talk about an experience of anti-Semitism. Yeah. I guess two things that makes me think are one, I think it comes back partly to this question of, of, um, you know, what it means in the ADL survey to witness anti-Semitism and pointing out the idea that's like, well, if someone saw a video of one of these attacks, because if it's including online, that's witnessing it. And then a lot of these things with all the Israel things, some of them, some of them are sort of, well, they're all discursive in the sense that they all mean someone saying something or doing a protest somewhere, basically. Um, and so I think it's related to the thing we were talking about in the response, which is this kind of question of tropes, where it's sort of like, if I see this Republican ad saying this thing that invokes this structure that I know to be anti-Semitic, it's this, I don't know, it's this, it's an experience of, I know I've said the word discourse so many times in this, in this thing, but an experience of discourse or a kind of witnessing, it's like mediated in some way. And all, you know, all experiences are, are mediated, but I don't know, there's this like kind of, the mediation becomes a way to actually not look at your experience in the sense that Ariel was talking about it in terms of the Pew stuff, in terms of like, well, what's my, well, I mean, what's my psychological experience? What is my class position? And what is my life actually like and things like that as the kind of experience. So, so that's one thing. And then I, I would also just say that I think, you know, in the way that Ariel's talking about, and I, it gets uncomfortable the more we try to say it in broad terms rather than in our own case that we're sort of allowed to speak to. But I, but I think the stuff we talked about in the responsa and this stuff with ADL survey speaks to the kind of unreliability of, or the, um, the way in which just like personal experience as an authority is like dangerous or powerful in as much as it's not, I mean, I know I said this before, but it's not contestable. And so it's sort of, it's not, it's hard to, it's hard to build a foundation on that, I think, because, or I guess I wonder, it's like, can we think about ways in which it offers a way in and is useful in that, but, but can't be, re can't, um, 
can't like be a foundation of a politics or or even a claim about the world on its own because it's so it's so easy to make it make it say anything because it just sort of it just rests on absolute authority of anybody to be able to say this is what this is you know and there might be there might be cases in which that's both like necessary and important for like you know in terms of like you know believing people who say they've experienced sexual assault. I think that's an important principle in that context. But also, as um, like Mari was pointing to, there's also ways that can totally within a like carceral system can come to lead to things we might like not agree with, which is not to say, which is not to contest the value of the, you know, of, of believing people when they say things happen to them. But it, but is also to say that that has to exist in a context and is easily, I guess I would just say also, is very easily exploitable. And I think um, the case with Jews and with Israel, I mean, it's interesting that I feel like we've noticed trends in which uh, is Israel and Zionists and kind of hard right proponents of Israel have been very good about finding areas of left wing rhetoric that are, because of things like this, are very open to exploitation. I mean, a uh, in some ways complicated case <clears throat> is this like indigenous conversation by saying, well, actually we're indigenous. Um, but this appropriation of, of left-wing rhetoric that I don't know, is, is very, um, is very powerful. And I think in the, in the Israel case is often the absent term is the kind of power relations thing because, uh, people are able to use saying, I experienced this as anti-Semitic as a way to get away from the conversation about in the context of Israel-Palestine, who actually has the power in that situation. Two things that came up for me when you were talking. One is I'm actually reading um, Sexual Justice by Alexandra Schwartz right now about um, basically like, you know, civil cases, civil sexual assault cases and due process, you know, And, and she's actually, I think, dealing with a lot of the same thing. It's like, yes, believe women, but, but, but believe women is not sort of like an enforceable, like she actually has a lot of issues with that hashtag, which is like, it's a good political tool to like introduce an idea into, um, into the bloodstream of society. And it's like a good, um, it's like a good principle for when you're talking to like your friends or like when a friend of yours or a family member comes to you with an experience of sexual assault, but it's not like a legally enforceable kind of, uh, kind of a phrase. And, and I do think that like in questions of power, and especially because we have a situation, which is the IHRA where there are actual enforceable ways that Palestinian speech and Palestinian identity is being legislated um, along these lines, that becomes a pretty important piece of all of this. Um, and as you said, in terms of the power analysis, and, um, I keep thinking about like the ways that like subjectivity, for example, like has dominated, uh, Jewish media. So like, just like the, the fall of, I mean, like, obviously like we don't think of ourselves as a quote unquote objective organization, but like we have made very um, intentional decisions to rely way less on opinion pieces and way more on reporting or research. Um, And, you know, for example, for a really long time, the forwards opinion page really drove the, the organization. 
that seems to be, I think, shifting even in the last couple of years. But it, but it certainly was uh, the case for a long time where you essentially would just constantly have people being like, I experienced anti-Semitism. And then like a personal account of how they were attacked by Palestinian activists or something. And yeah, it's like you can't argue with that. And you also can't um, blame Jews who've been reading this crap for 20 years for kind of drinking the Kool-Aid or whatever. Like there is a way in which we can't just say like, well, they think this. And so we wash our hands of it or we're out of it. Like there, there is a way that we need to like actively transform the discourse um, because this is something that was also done intentionally or like allowed that, that it was like allowed to happen. Um, and so, you know, there is a way in which we have to kind of think about it as something that is a cause and effect that needs to be reversed. Yeah. And also thinking about what it means, like these questions of like subjectivity when it comes to an interest, when it comes to organizations doing the collective, I mean, collecting, I mean, what does it mean to have any kind of organization whose driving reason is to report on a certain type of hate crime or incident or type of violence. I mean, even if we feel that they are in good faith, which I think we often don't feel about certain choices made by the ADL, an organization, um, you know, that kind of has that as its driving mission is going to have a particular viewpoint is going to, well, first of all, if it's a nonprofit organization, it's going to have to please funders. It's going to have to have donors and supporters and, it's much easier to get support if you're saying anti-Semitism is rising than to say otherwise. I'm not trying to necessarily accuse the ADL of any kind of conspiracy or intentional conspiracy in that way. I just think that if the framework that you're working in is designed around identifying and reporting a certain type of incident, that's like going to shape your mindset around those incidents in a certain way. And it's something that we have to think about because I think also sometimes the left's answer to these kinds of concerns is, well, like, what if we make our own website? Like, what if we do our own anti-Semitic incident tracking, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Um, you know, scholars and commentators about things like hate crimes sort of have different takes on whether or not it makes sense to try to categorize certain things as hate crimes or hate violence and like report it. Um, sometimes there's concerns about what it means, like using um, Stuart Hall's definition of creating a moral panic and whether focusing extensively on reporting sort of serves to kind of create this framework and impose it on events that actually results in creating more panic or more moral panics that result in carceral responses. But, you know, at the same time, obviously when, types of violence happen to people that's, you know, racially motivated and that's motivated by anti-Semitism. People want some sort of recognition of that feeling They're, you know, people want some sort of community response. So I think it's very complicated and there's a need to figure out what to do about that. But like, if you have an organization that is looking for it, you know, that there are very specific structures that create very specific incentives for what you're going to find and what you're going to do. There is this statistic in this survey that I think we should address, which is what people who should do a lot or somewhat more to address recent anti-Semitism. And at the top, there's this 79% say Republicans in Congress and states should do more. 78% say Democrats in Congress and states should do more. 77% civil rights groups, 76% President Biden. 
76% non-Jewish faith leaders, which is also kind of interesting because like they, they already say that 42% say that President Biden and his administration has greatly helped address anti-Semitism. So I guess it's like both that he's greatly helped and that he should do more. But also there's this general feeling that Congress should do more, which is very interesting because Congress has done a lot of stuff around this historically and recently. I mean, I think there's, it depends on what you think. I mean, maybe, I don't know if that's, if some of those survey respondents are referring to Ilhan Omar, if they're referring to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, to be clear, whom I don't think are at all equivalent, but that some people do. Um, But, you know, there is this, I think this is something that Arielle was talking about earlier today, which is that there's this persistent sense that like the Jews have been abandoned and that nobody cares about anti-Semitism, which also isn't isn't borne out in terms of the actual official response, which in Congress has, you know, I think Mitch McConnell was planning to release some sort of hate crimes legislation. There was like a congressional letter and statement that was created. Um, There's been a lot, I mean, in New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo called in the National Guard to protect Jewish institutions. So there's been a pretty robust institutional response. Well, not to mention that you're, as your reporting has shown, Jews are receiving a lot of congressional money for security uh, for their, you know, for through the uh, the nonprofit security grant program. And we also have a special envoy for anti-Semitism, which is a position it's kind of like an anti-Semitism ambassador, which is a position that doesn't exist for almost any other uh, kind of hatred or racism. And they, I think, in response to the recent, quote, you know, the recent uptick, quote unquote, um, they, uh, there was like a resurgence or a reformation of the uh, Black Jewish caucus, uh, which existed in an earlier form, if I'm not mistaken about this. So, so like, there's definitely movement. Like people are, people in government are responding, but I I don't think that people are usually looking for that kind of response. They, they are kind of conveniently ignoring those responses because this is really obviously for the Barry Weisses of the world, a rhetorical way to beat up on the left and beat up on the uh, kind of like grassroots organizing. And I think that the reason that that is easy to do is because the left is looking to see what, people in power are doing. Like if people in power are responding to something like this, then what is the point of protesting on behalf of it necessarily? You know, I think like that is kind of like the basic left analysis on this. Well, I would like to take this time to announce my candidacy for a national envoy against anti-Irish <laughs> discrimination. And I encourage my Italian brothers and sisters to select from among you a suitable representative so that we can end discrimination against white ethnics. If I hear another protester say paddy wagon, (laughs) they're being arrested at a civil disobedience thing, disrupting commerce, then I will file a complaint with (laughs) What about Irish goodbye? Are you going to crack down on that trope? No, no more Irish goodbye. (laughs) Wait, what's an Irish goodbye? you leave without saying goodbye. Oh, I thought that was a French goodbye. No, that's where you kiss everybody. And then there's the Jewish goodbye is when you go around the room, you're at somebody's apartment, you kiss everyone, you hug them, you have a little conversation, and then the cops come and they get evicted. You live there now. That's Jewish. <laughs> oh, I thought the Jewish goodbye is when you say goodbye to everyone and then you stand at the door talking for another hour. That is my understanding of the Jewish goodbye. Yeah, that's the Jewish goodbye. Um, Anti-Semitic. <laughs> 
Um, I had someone once tell me that they used French goodbye because instead of Irish goodbye, because they didn't want to be rude to Irish. They didn't want to be discriminatory against Irish people. <laughs> okay. Well, I, we've clearly gone off the rails here. We should probably... <laughs> do we want to say anything about what we think we can do about this or do we not need to do that? Well, I mean, I, I propose something. I mean, I just think like this is there is like a co-constitutive relationship between our media and our institutions and, and Jewish public opinion. And so like, I don't think we can just say, well, this is what Jewish public opinion is and therefore throw up our hands. Like, I think something that the Pew study shows is that Jewish public opinion changes over time on a whole bunch of things. I mean, like 70 years ago, more Jews were non-Zionist than Zionist, like in the United States, like there has been a shift um, that has happened over time. And it has happened like in a mutually reinforcing way with our institutions and with institutional money. And I don't think that there's any reason to think that it can't be undone or that like the Jewish populace can't get smarter on these kinds of things if there are organizations that are changing and particularly because they're changing generationally. I mean, what's really interesting about that ADL survey is that there's like a really large number. I, I, I'm not looking at it, but there's a large number of people who say that they've had a conversation with someone. Oh, 18% have seen one or more of their personal relationships suffer because of conversations about the recent violence. And the first thing I thought of is that those are people talking to their kids. Like those are like American Jews having really shitty conversations with like someone in their family, including probably their children. Um, and so like, there is a change that's already happening, uh, and we need to be there to continue. I mean, like something that I've been feeling is just like, even if we're, if, if people are like, you don't represent Jews, like we do have to kind of stand here and say, like, maybe we don't right now, but like we will. Um, and like, uh, you know, we will, and we are right. And so and history will bear that out. And so like over time, things will change, you know. Can't get enough Jewish Currents? Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And visit jewishcurrents.org to subscribe and see our latest. A very special thanks to Nathan Salzberg for providing us with the music from his album, Landwerk Number no. 2, and to Santiago Elu Cantero for producing this segment. Thanks for listening. That's all from us.